When you're at a party, when you're at any kind of event where you're talking to non-bike racers or people who aren't as bike racing obsessed as all of us are, I bet you when you say to them, I'm a bike racer, this is my passion, this is my hobby, this is the thing that I do at 8 a.m. on a Saturday in July in the summer, they will immediately think not of you ripping corners at Boise or Intelli or Gateway or Sunny King. They will immediately think of the Tour de France. They will immediately think of the Giro d'Italia or at least some variety of stage race. At its core, at its soul, the popular image of bike racing is of stage racing, is of a yellow jersey is of a polka dot jersey. These things are ubiquitous within our sport. We started this podcast all about criterium racing because that's our passion here. That's the thing that we love to do. But it's not the only thing that we love to do. We love to bike race. We will bike race to a city limit sign, and that's definitely not criterium racing at its core, but it is what bike racing is at its core. It is all about doing whatever you can to go as fast as you can and compete as much and as often as you can. So we need to talk about stage racing because it still is and always will be a foundational part of this sport. It will always be the thing that popular culture thinks of when they think about bike racing. Fortunate for us here in the United States, all the major stage races come complete with their own criterium. You've got Redlands with its epic 15,000 corner crit, one of the most technical and demanding ones of all crits. And then we have something like Joe Martin with its incredible uphill finish, which comes after several days of beating your legs into oblivion. Then on top of that, Green Mountain has a very similar technical race. We can go on and on and on. Criterium racing is a part of stage racing in the United States, and stage racing is what bike racing can be about. We in the United States just don't have the tradition of celebrating it as much, but we know that there is a hunger for it. There is a hunger for stage racing. There is an interest in it. And if we in the media and fans supporting the sport can get behind stage racing as much as we get behind just regular good old-fashioned criterium racing and crit racing series, we can make a difference. So we're here today with Eric Hill from Project Echelon, one of the premier stage racing teams in the country. And Alan, our trusty senior men's correspondent, is joining us as well to talk all about stage racing and why we love it. My name is Rob Kelly. This is Criterium Nation, a show about life lived one corner at a time. We are a proud part of the Wide Angle Podium network of shows. WideAnglePodium.com is your source for the full bevy, I say it again, bevy of shows that we have on the network that covers everything from mountain bike and cyclocross to gravel to comedy to indoor bike racing to this very show here, Criterium Nation, which talks about crits and also stage racing today. And, you know, we cover road racing too and everything in between. 
So go to WideAnglePodium.com, the internet's only source for top-tier independent cycling content. Become a member and subscriber and help financially support this content creator-owned effort. It is now July, the heart of the summer, and we are so excited and proud to welcome back Caldera Lab as a sponsor for today's show. You know, I know, everybody knows, first impressions matter. There is no two ways around it. The first thing that someone will notice about you, probably in most cases, is your face. And most importantly, your skin. If you aren't already, it's time to put your best face forward. And how do you do that? By adding in a top quality skincare routine. I guarantee it. I've been using this for the last couple of weeks, or last couple of months, excuse me now, and I have had such positive results with Caldera Lab. I have been using the full regimen, which is their clean slate, their base layer, they're good. On top of that, I also added the Icon, which is the eye serum. So what is the regimen? We've talked about it before, but we'll talk about it again. The clean slate is the thing that starts and ends your day. It is their base face wash that will leave your skin feeling refreshed, feeling healthy, and ready to go with what comes next. What comes next? The base layer, your daily moisturizer that hydrates your skin and then absorbs in there fast to give you a nice matte finish so that when you walk out of the door on your way to your day job, you will look good and you will be confident and ready to go. And then what is the good, speaking of which, that is their at-night-before-bed clinically proven multifunctional serum that helps your skin look tighter and smoother. Just because you're master's age doesn't mean you need to have skin that looks it. So go to Caldera Lab, C-A-L-D-E-R-A, lab, all one word, dot com, for 20% off by using our promo code, Criterium Nation. Caldera Lab, 20% off with Criterium Nation. Okay, we got a long show here, so let's get right into it with Eric Hill and Alan Schroeder. And we're doing all that right now. You know, it's that time of year where everybody who isn't a bike racing fan suddenly becomes a bike racing fan for 21 plus days because it's the Tour de France. And everybody then starts to ask the question, why don't we have a tour of the United States? Where's the tour of America? Those of us who are in the know will have pivoted and said, well, we had the tour of Missouri. We had the tour of Georgia. We had the tour of Utah. We had the tour of California. We had the tour of Colorado. The United States is just too big. You could have a tour of Texas and be the same size as France. But we have plenty of stage races in the United States, even though we talk constantly about the decline of them, we still have a vibrant stage racing culture, community, and opportunity. So we've got two people here who know the ins and outs of stage racing from a owner, logistic, manager, and participant level, all the way across. So I'm gonna start with Eric Hill, a team owner of Project Echelon. Find out how you're doing tonight in the wonderful uh, Wauwatosa slash Waukesha part of Wisconsin. Yeah, doing great. It's, um, 
We're finally in like a slow part of the season for like two weeks. Um, it seems like it's been absolutely nonstop. Um, with our racing having started in January uh, at the uh, the Challenge Mallorca, and really racing, you know, everything for weeks on weeks on weeks, all the way through um, June, ending in the U.S. Pro Nationals, and so uh, we're finally taking a little bit of downtime. Uh, resetting and getting ready to make a big push here at the end of the at the end of the season. But it feels good to be home. I'm sorry. I need to I need to go feed my dog, or this is going to keep happening, Rob. That's okay. Go feed the dog. Well, let me let me jump in here and say, are the bikes dry yet? Because <laughs> the entirety of the Project Echelon racing season seems to be encapsulated with rain at the beginning, rain at the end, and maybe some time in the desert in the middle. Yeah, let me, I mean, all right, literally, Mallorca, the five days we were there, are racing, the wettest five days on record in Mallorca. So wet that they had a landslide that took out the famous climb, La Calabra. Then we come back home, we get to race in the desert a little bit, relatively dry. Um, but then we go to Joe Martin, absolutely torrential downpours um, at that race. Then we go to Tour de Beauce, rains every single day. Uh, and then we go to U.S. Pro Nationals. And again, torrential downpour. So we got clouds hanging over our heads, literally, but not figuratively. So we're doing all right. Yeah, the results have been there for sure, especially with Tyler and Cade Bickmore and, you know, even Sam Morris, the noted Canadian. You know, you guys have been really coming in hot. Speaking of hot, Alan Schroeder, all the way from Boise. Uh, the man who has done every single American major American stage race this year. How are you doing out there? Good. Yeah. Um, also like just got back to Boise after pro road nets and kind of taking some downtime like the PE guys, but yeah, it's also Boise twilight week this week. So I don't know. There's always like a different vibe in the air in Boise when twilight weekend comes around. So yeah, really excited for that, but also just trying to like regroup a little bit after the year that we've had so far. You have been the man on the road like this entire time. Uh, has Deco the cat recognized you since you've been home? <laughs> Luckily, yeah. I mean, I think my longest span of time at home since we started racing, like in March maybe, was has been like a seven-day stretch. But yeah, luckily I have a good friend, John Hughes has been willing to take him in and watch him while I'm gone. So he's not just like sitting around at home all by himself. It's been a good situation. <laughs> so this naturally lends itself to this discussion because stage racing, unlike one day crits, uh, uh, is a time and equipment intensive endeavor. It's also an exceptionally expensive endeavor because when you look at a race, like the Valley of the Sun, you know, there's two bikes involved at Valley of the Sun because you've got a road bike and a time trial frame. The same thing with uh, Redlands and, you know, it just keeps going. I think only really Joe Martin has the uphill time trial sort of, you know, access denied when it comes to funny looking bikes. Why? So let's start with the why and I'm going to start with Eric. Why is it still so critical that we maintain a healthy a healthy stage racing component to the United States as opposed to pivoting away and say just if you want to race long go race gravel if you want to race short you can race crits 
why is it so critical that we maintain this this UCI style stage racing? Let me let me start by saying first and foremost, I value all forms of racing, right? Like I'm not here to say that one is superior to the other, but I am here to say that we can't uh, turn a blind eye to the importance of and um, really the beauty of of stage racing. Um, you know, we hear watching things like Tour de France Unchained, right? It's it's uh, chess on two wheels. What you learn about your body, what you learn about your team, what you learn about uh, tactics, um, all of those things get thrown into one big pot and you got to sort it out um, over the course of multiple days. And it's the same reason why even like a crit series like Intelligentsia Cup or Tour of America's Dairyland, the way those races are raced on day one versus days seven, eight, nine, and 10 are totally different. And so um, it, it's, it's a different form of racing in which we get to test our mental fortitude, our physical fortitude. Uh, you get to test the depth of your team. It gives multiple people opportunities um, to lead, to take chances, to win bike races. Um, and ultimately, you know, it is the path to Europe. It is the path to the world tour. Um, that's not to say that you can't get there another way, but chances are if you're not doing stage races both here in the United States and getting results at UCI events stateside or even you know uh, high quality events like Redlands and then taking that and testing yourself internationally as well you're probably not going to get that opportunity to take that next step so while I think the um, criterium scene is um, at the highest level of competition that we've seen in probably a decade or more I think that there's another level of physical demand, uh, mental demand, um, logistical, I guess, warfare, we can call it, amongst teams when you go to stage races. And it's something that it, it's really an art. Um, it's really the, the core and the heart of our sport. And it's what we love to do at Project Echelon. It's, it's really where um, what our team has been built around. Let me ask you this as a follow-up, and then I'm going to turn it over to Alan because I've got a, a good question for him. Why is it that we still value that pipeline from here in the United States slash North America to Europe? That pipeline where we say our best racers must leave our shores and go to Europe to play the ball game over there, as opposed to no, 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 no. Let's have Sepp Cuss, you know, let's have Nelson Paulus. Let's have all of the best folks stay here in the United States and race purely whatever we have to offer here. Yeah. I mean, why do MLS players want to go play in the premier league? Why do European basketball players want to come play in the NBA at the end of the day? That is where the best of the best in the world, the best equipment, the best and most demanding courses, the best riders are racing their bikes. And it is what cycling culture history is, is, is built on. I think we're building a new brand here in the United States. Um, it's something exciting. It's fast. It's explosive. But it's not what you grew up watching and dreaming about maybe that'll change as a younger generation is more has greater exposure to 
uh, Criterion Racing and the style of racing that we do here stateside. But I think you'll always find the the best endurance athletes with again the best equipment, the best teams, you know, over over in Europe because that's where that's where the sport was built. That's where its deepest roots lie. So, Alan, I want to ask you this. You know, you're the person who has done all of them this year. And we're going to get into a conversation about what all of them actually physically means and and what if any brass ring of, you know, stage race events that happen in the United States are. But why is it that a guy who is exceptionally good at criterium racing on a team that admittedly never thought of itself as a criterium racing team, but definitely did a lot of criterium racing over the last two, three years. Why is it that a guy like you and a team like CS fellow invested so heavily this year in going to Redlands, going to Gila, going to Joe Martin, you know, six people, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of time. That's a lot of effort. Yeah. Yeah, it is for sure. Uh, I mean, I suppose the short answer is that our team owner, Kurt Dodds is yeah, just a huge cycling fan. Um, he he loves the European style of racing. He loves stage racing. Loves watching the Tour and the Giro, uh, and all those big, beautiful races over there. So when he like set out to start a team, it was in his mind that he wanted it to be a stage race team. And then over the years, he's just sort of you know gathered the athletes that share that same sort of passion. And yeah, I guess I, I fall into that category. Uh, it's hard to put my finger exactly on why maybe I just like there's some part of my brain that is broken and decides that like five days of just destroying my body is a good idea. But really I think it just comes down to like the desire to like prove myself uh, as an athlete, but also just sort of find out like how, how far I can go uh, at each one of these races. Um, Yeah. And just like, I don't know, a a desire to, to compete with the best and experience what it's like to to do all of these races and be competitive in them. Uh, so really, I would say it's like, I guess, a curiosity for what I can accomplish and just like what those sensations are, how it feels to do these races. Ultimately, the question that you're asking is, why do we still run a 5K at track meets? Why don't we just, why doesn't everybody just want to run the 100, right? Um, Alan just, you know, he said something like, I want to see how far my body, my mind can go. And a 75 minute, 90 minute crit, man, they're fucking hard, but you don't get to that point of like, holy shit, I'm going to crack. Like, and by crack, I mean like everything's going to stop working, including my mind. And, um, you know, day five of of Gila, you know, and you're like, I still got 40 miles to go. We're still full tilt and I'm at altitude. Like you feel that, you know, going into, going into the last lap of, of sunset loop, you feel that it, it's a, it's a different feeling as an athlete, right? Like I was a distance runner in college. I wasn't the, the sexy sprinter, like that everybody, you know, flashy, everybody wants to see, but you know, I, I chose that path because I loved that feeling of how far can I go before I fall apart. Um, and I think that is something that as endurance athletes, which cycling is an endurance sport 
for in de- definition by most, road cycling is an endurance sport. That's the that's the feeling that we crave. Yeah, and to some extent, it's like you don't even necessarily like the goal is always to have a good result, right? Like to get a win if you can, even like for me, you know, like I've gotten some top tens this year and it's been really exciting. But when you do finish a race and you do just like ride so hard that you crack yourself, which definitely happened to me on the last day of Gila. (laughs) Um, I didn't quite crack on like sunset in like an existential sense, but yeah, the last loop, like I completely came undone and lost the lead group. And there is a satisfaction that comes with that of knowing like, yeah, I've literally went as hard as I possibly could. And like, this is how far I made it. Uh, and then you have like the excitement of finding that out. But then also I think what keeps people coming back for more is like, okay, so now what do I have to do to like go further next year? And yeah, just going through that whole experience, it's like, I guess just two different ways to really get like a lot of satisfaction from the racing itself that you really, again, don't get in like other types of racing. So one thing, and Eric, I don't know if you remember this, but we met for the first time in like August of 2021, I think, uh, or maybe August of 2020. It was the first time that you and Zach Gregg were on the show. Afterwards, I sent you an article or a draft of an article that I was working on that was espousing the belief that Criterium Racing was here to save bikes in the United States and that everything else in the world uh, could or should go into the background. And I don't know if you remember what your response to me was, but I sure as heck do remember. And I have never admittedly been more wrong about bike racing than I was in (laughs) sending you that article thinking that I was right. Because you proved to me like what we are being shown again every single year when the Tour de France comes around is that the people who excel at stage racing at these insane events are really the pinnacle of the sport. They are the pinnacle of whatever it is that we want ourselves to be. So here's the, here's the question that comes out of that. It's, this thought that can, let me see if I can phrase this correctly because it's one of those, you know, SAT style questions. <laughs> all, <laughs> all, yes, all great stage racers can be great criterium racers, but not all great criterium racers can be stage racers. You could see a Cavendish, an Philippe. A Christelle Vandeval Brock. I totally butchered that one. Yeah, I have no idea who that guy is, but I want to meet him. <laughs> <laughs> but like you can see all of these these riders who are exceptionally good at these stage races, at, at even like Perry Nice, shorter stage races. They could come over and they could wipe the board in any criterium that they wanted to. You, why is that? I, you know, and I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say all, um, do like, do I think Thibaut Pino would come and wipe our, you know, wipe our asses in a criterion? Probably not. Um, right. <laughs> do I think you'd obviously be in the field and be competitive and try his hand off the front? Absolutely. I do, but I don't, I don't think he's going to come in and win those races, but I, I, yeah, I vividly remember that conversation and it was, uh, it was actually more so about the fact that criteriums, as they become shorter and less technical and less, uh, the courses become less like a, a factor of attrition, um, that we've 
we've created a divergence between the two disciplines so much so that like being great at one kind of results you at being average at the other. You know, we look at the races of old during the days of the NCC when I, when I started racing and, you know, the shortest race was 90 minutes. Most of them were 80 to hundred K. Most of them were, you know, six to 12 corners in length um, and had some sort of feature in it that created, you know, made it not only a, a tactical race of positioning, but also a race of attrition. And honestly, like I was a better criterion racer by the, by the numbers, if you look at results in the days of old, because now we get to these 60, 70 minute criteriums where, and it's, it's about finesse, it's about position and it's about how, how much balls you have right in the last corner. And admittedly I'm getting older. Right. Um, so I think my top end power is fading. Uh, my, my brain is kicking in and saying like, don't do that, but it, it's different, right? Like you look at, um, Races like Bucks County, you look at Armed Forces Cycling Classic, you look at Wilmington Grand Prix, like those are races that still have that kind of old model. And the people who are at the front end of those races and making them hard all the way to the line are not the same people that were doing it at Tulsa. And again, like not saying one is better than the other, but having a healthy balance between the two is really important. And it allows for, you know, these two different disciplines to it creates a bridge between them. Right. And it allows for criterion, you know, savvy racers that are really good at those um, style of events to come in and do road races, right? Like their training overlaps, their, their skill set overlaps and vice versa. Well, you've, you've made it, you've made it a point to make sure that your team is there for some criteriums. I mean, you started a squad at pro nationals, Tyler Stites, the legendary road racer and GC guy for Project Echelon, was right there at the start line at Crit Nationals. There are plenty of teams, American professional teams, who kept their riders back from the Crit in years past because it's too dangerous, quote unquote. And I feel like that's a disservice because these are events that are right there. You know, why is it important to you to put somebody like Tyler in that race and say, you know what, go play, go figure this out, find out how good you are in this 70 minute crit. Yeah. Um, well, look, one, Luke Lamperti won. Um, Luke Lamperti has been a, <laughs> I mean, he, he hasn't raced a crit all year, right? Like he just got done winning a, a stage of the baby Giro and he came in one. So it's very clear that, you know, the skill set that you need for a criterium is going to result in, you know, a team to better organize, um, and, and set themselves up for success in a sprint finish. You know, Luke is a finisher and he knows where to be, when to be there, when to make the jump, how to read the group. And that's why he's able to find that success, um, on his own, right? Like get, it gets really chaotic, especially at the end of a 120 mile stage when everybody's totally gassed and sprinters jump and train to train. He, he used and abused us at, at pronouns, right? And so it's an opportunity for us to, one, uh, race truly against the, the best teams in the country um, on a national stage to test, you know, really our capacity to organize and perform and deliver and, and to be able to take that and then, you know, really take what we learned, that communication, all of it, and apply it to a stage race setting. So, again, like there's skills that go back and forth that 
can help us be successful. And that's why I say I value all forms of racing. We just happen to, you know, put our focus on, on stage racing, but that's not to say that there aren't positive takeaways from the criterion racing that we do. Well, I think it's important to remember that one unique thing about all American stage races is that they all have crits as a part of them. Right. So like, if you are wanting to be a stage race team in America, like you still have to be able to ride a crit. Uh, and you know, like that has really brought down a lot of people where they're super strong, especially coming out of 2020, you know, everyone was very, very strong, but if you don't have, you know, the bike handling, the decision-making ability, like you're never going to win a major, uh, us stage race because they all have crits and eric like you're talking about earlier one unique thing about the stage race crits is that they are technical like redlands is one of the most chaotic technical crits that we'll do all year joe martin has a big climb and eight corners in it uh and then yeah gila has the climb it's only four corners but you're also at elevation so you just have no oxygen in your brain the whole time uh yeah so that like you have you have to be good at it and then when we get the chance to just go do an armed forces a weekend of crits it's like kind of lower stakes and it, 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 it's not easier by any means but yeah I mean, I actually think it's higher stakes, um, right? It's because there's no order to the to the to the race at that point. But I, like, I just want to take a step back and like touch on some of those because those criteriums in those races actually often have huge impacts on GC outcomes. Red Redlands, you know, Robin took five seconds back on GC. It put him in a content and a place of contention for the overall and. I mean, it came down to the wire for us on that one. Gila, not quite as much. Um, you know, Cade ended up winning winning that race, but it did secure the points jersey um, for him. He All he had to do was finish the last day. Joe Martin, Riley, uh, overtook Miguel Angel Lopez, right? Like, literally, he's still ranked top 50 in the world, and he hasn't raced at the World Tour in over a year. Um, but Riley overtook him at that race because he's a criterium savvy. And then Tour de Beauce, uh Tyler really struggled on Mount Magentic, dropped down to 13th overall, had an awesome crit, and uh, took back 33 seconds, moved himself back into fifth, and put himself in position to end up second on GC um, by the last stage. So, like, again, like you said, race a lot of the races that we do have criterions in them. Some people argue that we shouldn't, but we do, and we have to be able to perform uh, when it matters for those. So Alan, I want to come back to that concept of the brass ring of stage races. You know, in Europe, it's pretty easy. We've got three grand tours. They are the top. And then you've got a, a second tier and a third tier and maybe a fourth tier set of races beneath that, you know, in the United States, do we have a brass ring of, Stage races. And, and, and when I say the United States, we can throw Canada in there, too. Frankly, I don't know anything about, you know, racing in Colombia or Guatemala. I know that there's a Dominican Republic stage race that people are big into. And there's the the Panama race that Butcher Box and, you know, Best Buddies have done in the past. But like if we look purely at the northern half of North America, the United States and Canada, do we have a brass ring? A this is the group of stage races that you should aspire to do in the in in those two countries. Yeah, I mean, obviously it's not officially like there's no uh 
series, I guess, to combine them all. But definitely, you know, Redlands and then the two UCI stage races of Tour of the Gila and Joe Martin stage race are the big three in the US and I would even argue that yeah Tortobose now that it's kind of out of its hiatus and come back uh are the the ones that if you are wanting to make a career in the US or especially if you're wanting to make the jump over to Europe you really have to go to those races and perform and sort of prove yourself there but I'll even say like add Green Mountain to that list um I mean, I've I've picked up three riders over the years based on performances at Green Mountain, right? A dynamic race, a challenging race um, that requires you to be able to show depth, um, a really technical crit there as well. Um, and so, I, yeah, I think you can you can tag that one on to um, to those other other four. Yeah, and honestly, there's a lot of state oh, i guess i won't say a lot but there are other stage races that right now are you look at valley of the sun or, or tucson bicycle classic i mean everybody was at those races this year yeah huge fields what i think tucson had like 90 guys or something and the one two or the two three field was even bigger than that yeah yeah i think one of the things that kurt and myself and um like dino piscopanis and all these other directors have talked about is and the big races are where we decide to go. And if we really want to grow stage racing, what all that needs to happen is that teams need to commit to going. And we can show up to um, tour Southern Highlands. We can show up to you know any any multi day race, and we can make it a big race because all of the right players are there. It, we just have to double down on that commitment, and then we have to do it consistently year over year, so that people can can plan for it. And so that we're honestly promoting or supporting those race promoters so they can put on a higher level of it. Here's my question. When you look at it, why those races? What is it about those races that draws your eye to them as one, Eric, a team owner, and two, Alan, as a bike racer? Like, you got excited about Joe Martin. So excited that you attacked on the same day, same race, two years in a row, and, you know, made your life miserable, you know, like you got up for that sort of thing. So, Eric, let's start with you. What is it that you are looking for in a stage race when you say, I want to go to Tucson or I want to go to Fayetteville? Yeah, I mean, early season, one, we're looking for a warm climate. We're looking for a race that has all three disciplines, time trial, criterium, you know, um, road race in it. So it allows us to to really hone in um, on those skills and set us up for success as the year progresses. Others of them, it's really about nostalgia. It's about the history that's there. And it's, it's meaningful to win those races because you look at the names of people who have won those races before, like Tyler Stites winning back-to-back Redlands. The only other person that's done that in the last 20 years is Chris Horner. That's pretty freaking impressive, right? The only team that's that didn't... So he was on, uh, I think like net gear for that. The only team that did it before that was us postal service. Those are the only two teams that have won, not even individuals, only two teams that have won back to back at Redlands. So like there's prestige in that, you know, the other is the UCI classification is, is meaningful, especially for us now as a, a new um, continental program that wants to do more international racing. Well, we have to get UCI points in order to get permitted into or invited into those races. Um, 
So going and performing well at those gets us those points, moves us up on the list, allows us to do, um, you know, more of those events, but parts of it too are, are looking for, for new challenges, new opportunities to, to allow, you know, other guys on the, on the team to excel and lead and, and win, which is why we've done green Mountain stage race in the past, which is why I dearly miss uh, cascade cycling classic and, and things like that. So, you know, between the, the prestige and the history that's there, and then between, again, that physical challenge, um, whether it's, you know, from the management side and the tactics that we play, uh, or the athlete rider side and that mental physical challenge that they experience, um, we're looking for, we're looking for those different types of opportunities. Eric is in a somewhat unique position with Project Echelon because the main title sponsor for Project Echelon is the foundation that Eric is a part of and owns and and co-founded with Eric Beach. Alan, you're on a team that you don't own in CS Velo. What is it that the sponsors, the people who are investing in CS Velo, so the the Ventums and the LELs and all of those, the District Tacos, you know, what is the, the benefit that they are getting coming back to them when you go and win, um, you guys won Gila last year, right? Yeah, yeah. Sean Gardner won Gila. And then this year we didn't manage to win the individual, but we did get the team GC, which was real cool. Oh, so that's going to be question number two of this. So what is it that Sean's winning at Gila, you know, that you guys were able to turn around and go back to the to your bike sponsor and say, hey, look at this. It's not even a podium bike picture. It's just awesomeness. We're on top. You know, what is it that you got to show them? Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like the biggest thing as with most things these days is that it's just, you know, the, uh, advertisement for them, basically getting to take all of the photos and videos that come out of these races and be like to all of their potential, uh, clients or, buyers i guess being like look like the some of the best guys in the country are using our gear like you can use the gear and you can go faster as well uh but i think it's also really good for a lot of these companies to show that they are invested in american cycling as well that you know they see that there is some benefit to be had they see there that there's value out of the racing that we're doing and they're not only sort of taking advantage of that but like putting money into it and supporting the people who are doing the racing. Uh, yeah. Which is, you know, something that basically everybody in all walks of life need to succeed. So with the team competition, win, you bring up an interesting point that when it comes down to stage racing, there is more than one race happening at any given time. There is by default two races, at least happening at every given time. There's the individual day and then you know, the overall, but now we can throw in king or queen of the mountains, team leader, sprint leader, you know, best young rider or the best silver rider. I think that's a category that needs to be invented for those of us who are over the age of 35. Um, You know, what is it about the, do you genuinely get excited about the team winning, you know, the team GC, or is that like something that somebody told you to say? (laughs) no you definitely get excited about it i mean you know obviously winning the individual gc overall is always the goal that's like where the prestige comes from that's yellow jersey type images but 
like winning any one of the the competitions within the race is just exceptionally difficult. I mean, to win Team GC, you need to have three guys all finishing basically in like the top 10 to top 20 every single day to have a shot at that race. So that that still is just like such a strong show of force anytime you're able to win a Team GC. Um or yeah, yeah, and just the same goes for the climber's jersey, the sprint's jersey. Like there is all, still so much strategy and thought and effort that goes into all of those competitions that, you know, maybe it doesn't have the prestige as the overall as strongest guy in the race, but there still is like a ton of value and sense of accomplishment anytime you get one of those. Eric, when we turn around and we use these results for furtherance of the team, so obviously year over year. The goal is to grow because if you're not growing, you're dying. So when you turn around and you take a look at sponsors and marketing partners and partners in general for 2024, how heavily do you sell Tyler's wins or Cade's wins, the team being the best, you know, stage racing team in the country, you know, we've won this, 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 and this, how big of a part of your marketing pitch is those stage race results as compared to anything else that you guys do during the course of the year? Honestly, it depends who I'm talking to. I, I, I can honestly say, and I, I would, I've talked to Justin Williams about this. I've talked to Dino about this. I've talked to Kurt about this. I don't think any of us have a single contract that says you need to win this many bike races in a year. I, I don't think, a, I don't think sponsors care. They do care, but that's not a metric. That's not a deliverable that we have to hit. What we have to hit is how many people are we reaching? How many people are we influencing? How many people are we authentically engaging with? And those wins open the door to people becoming interested in your brand. They want to be a part of your culture. They want to be a part of your team. And so you need to find a strategic way to translate that success into an invitation to be a part of this and to get other people to feel joy, excitement, acceptance, and community through that success. That's the challenge of today's sponsorship market. And it's what you know our mission has really beautifully allowed us to, to do. Um, you know, with that, you know, you go to a, a race and the race promoters excited about having a prolific winner being a part of their event. And so then they come to you and say, hey, would you come and do X, Y, and Z school visit and have lunch with the mayor or whatever it might be, right? And that opens more doors to more conversations to authentically engage with more people, which is what partners want. That's the indirect correlation between success and results and sponsorship. On the athlete side of things, it's very different, right? Like they don't necessarily see those peripheral connections winning is the currency for them and results is what's going to get them to whatever their next level is or whatever their ultimate goal for the season may be so from a management perspective i need to find the through lines for both of those storylines and make sure they weave together you know in a, in a seamless way that supports both of them um, because otherwise you're going to have this disconnect between what the team needs and sponsors need and what the athlete uses as, again, their currency for success. So even if I wanted to, which 
having looked at the course map for Gila, I know I don't want to engage in that event uh, as an individual. But even if I wanted to, it's prohibitively expensive for me to do that. You know, the same with Redlands, the same with, you know, any major stage race that requires two bikes, support, DSs, swan ears. I mean, Eric, when you guys go to these races, you'll send a, a Jonathan Powers or um, a Jonathan Page or, you know, Hamblin. You've got, you know, people who are doing mechanics like Ozzy. You've got an entire cast of human beings. Isaiah hands out water bottles at Redlands for you. You know, that's Isaiah Newkirk. He is a genius of data. You know, what is it, where is that threshold, that cost versus exposure versus fame versus, where does that cross so that you you say that this is now worth my experience? I mean, for me, when I build out a budget, I actually build it out cost per race day is kind of how I look at it. And so, for example, we're not going to Boise. Boise is an amazing race with an amazing atmosphere. Um, it's a four corner 70 minute crit that doesn't really play into our favor as far as, um, you know, our, our team dynamic and skill set. but it's also the most expensive race day on the calendar, single day on the race on the calendar for, for our team to get to based on geography and where we're at. Right. I, I look at Tour de Beauce, Joe Martin stage race, you know, still the same cost for flights. Once you get to a certain level of UCI race, the race actually pays for hotel and food and things like that as well. Um, so some of those races, like the cost of going to Mallorca was literally the cost of going to Mallorca. Everything else is covered. So that's kind of how I, I look at it. And so that's, you know, Ross cost per race day, which then I look at number of or amount of exposure and impressions that we make on each of those race days. And then number of community activations that we're able to do at each of those races. And that basically gives me a metric of like, hey, this, I just, I've built a Likert scale. Like this race is a seven out of 10 in value for our team. If anything's below a six, we don't go. I, I use, again, that, like that metric of you know, number of race days, uh, amount of exposure, opportunities for success, whatever, build that out, point, point scale, all right, this is something that we're going to pursue versus not. One of the things, though, that Mallorca did apparently not provide was top quality Parmesan cheese, because apparently the Italian teams kept bringing their own Parmesan cheese with them to every morning breakfast, every lunch, every dinner. I'm I'm watching. I'm like halfway through Tour de France Unchained on Netflix. It's really good. If you haven't started watching it yet, you should. It's a little cliche in some ways, but it'll give you a good laugh as well that way. Uh, but all those French and Italian teams, even at the tour, they're bringing their own cheese wheels. They're bringing their own coffee machines to the hotels. I mean, it is really funny to to watch, but you can tell that, you know, Alan was talking about how much he's on the road or I was talking about how much we're on the road. Like those guys literally live out of trucks. And so just having a little slice of home coming with you is really, really important to their like Honestly, their mental health. Alan, how? So we're on we're on that subject. You know, you go to Silver City, Silver City, New Mexico is not exactly the bastion of civilization that is Boise. I mean, Wi-Fi is spotty in some parts of Silver City. Like we've, I've, 
I've tried to have conversations with with people and it's not proven to be very useful or fruitful. How important is it to you when you go to these races in these locations where you're far away from family, far away from friends, that you've got six guys or five other guys on the team, plus the Swanier and the DS and, you know, Kurt and Meredith, you've got all of these people there with you. How critical of a role is that community? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't even say I'm far away from friends because the the guys, the team are like some of my best friends. And honestly, like part of the reason that I even keep doing this is just the experiences that I get to have going from city to city with these guys, you know, getting in the van with all of them and traveling. And like for amateur nationals, like we were all held up and well, not held up, but we were staying in uh, extended say America, just like when you're traveling so much with them, you go through so many different experiences and it just really like helps build those bonds that are really strong and really unique, I would say. Uh, and it, yeah, like it's like to be dramatic, it's kind of like shared trauma in some senses. Uh, but yeah, it's like without, without this team around me and the guys that are on the team, like this whole experience of racing a bike wouldn't be nearly as enjoyable and definitely not sustainable in the way that we do it. Now, Eric, this is the, I just, this just dawned on me. This is the first time that you and I have had a conversation, a recorded conversation where you haven't been the bike racer on the team anymore. You are now the manager of the team. You've always been the owner, but you've moonlighted as a bike racer. What is it now like? What are the feelings and emotions that you get now that are different than they were when you were you were in the mud with the guys versus now you're like, I am going to tell you this is what we need to do. Yeah. Um, honestly, they're they're really not different. I actually almost get a little bit more, more emotional about it, you know, excited about it because like the back end work that I've allowed myself to start doing this year that like had to take a back burner when I was also racing, right? Like, so everything from in, booking everybody's individual flights and taking that off the guy's plate or making sure that equipment, logistics, all of that stuff are sorted and it's not an individual rider that has to manage all of that, right? There's different types of wins and stresses along the way that I know led to a win at Redlands. And so for me, like that's an equally like exuberant celebration to be like all of the work of these five staff members, right. Um, that I work with to make that happen paid off. And I get to enjoy the success and the celebration and emotions that the guys have like in two ways, right? Like I'm celebrating with them the fact that they won, but I mean, that's something they're going to remember for the rest of their life. And I mean this in a sentimental way. That's an opportunity I was able to give them that nobody else was able to give them. And to me, that's like experience is the currency of life. Relationships is the currency of life. And um, like creating opportunities for guys to experience things and build relationships with one another like that. Um, like that's, that's amazing. It's a really good feeling. So how do we, we, the fans of the sport, the media, the commentators, everybody who isn't lining up at the sunset loop, you know, getting ready to do battle with the best men and women in the country. How do we make this experience better or make stage races 
more important to our community? Like, what is it that we need to do, Eric? Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing is is just media coverage. Um, I think we've we've seen it with Criterion Racing, right? Like, there has been more media in Criterion Racing than I can ever recall in the last five years, and because of it, it is it's elevated. Like, the the stakes are higher, the teams are more competitive. I mean, on any given day, any team has the capacity to win. And even three years ago, that wasn't necessarily the case, but people are pouring their heart, their soul, their energy into it. And so people chase shiny things and shiny things are things that, um, that get people's attention. So we need to give people a storyline to follow and, um, we need to continue to, to cover and honestly just show the value that stage racing stage racing has. I think the, the other piece is um, finding ways to invite people in to be a part of that experience with us, right? One of the, one of the amazing things about Criterion Racing is that it happens in people's backyards. Um, there's typically a day before or a day after where we do connect with the community. We do go for a ride. We do vi- you know, visit a, a school or, or things of that nature. And the stage races that do a good job of embodying those principles in their events, get amazing community support, and we get a lot of uh, attention because of it. You know, I think uh, Alan has been probably a part of tons of school visits at Redlands Bicycle Classic. The number of letters that we receive from kids, their parents, and community members because of simply going and doing a school visit and then parents bringing their kids to watch and cheer us on uh, at the circuit race and, and the criterium is incredible. Um, and little things like that help to add value to this art form of racing that we do called stage racing. What do you think Alan has been the off the bike experience about stage racing in the last two years that you valued the most? Uh, off the boat. So you mean not actually, doing the racing <laughs> not the actual racing part yeah the entire world around it not just the bike racing like all of that yeah well <laughs> the issue with that is that stage racing is pretty hard <laughs> you have to spend a lot of time when you're not riding just sort of laying around <laughs> uh but yeah i mean when we're i would say it comes back to like the camaraderie aspect of it, like just getting to travel around with your buds and sort of the, the weeks in between the races themselves are, are really fun and it chances to sort of explore new places with your friends that you never would have seen before. But yeah, also the, the school visits definitely are always highlights every time we get to do one. Uh, you know, with Redlands, they're like quote unquote mandatory, but I think we would do them even if it weren't just because it's like a pretty unique uh, experience, honestly, to go and just like talk about bikes at some kids for 15 minutes and have them be like genuinely super stoked and pumped up about it. And like really curious about the bikes and like how much they weigh and how fast you go. And just like these things that kind of become ingrained in our everyday lives are actually like interesting and exciting to these kids. So yeah, getting to share that and try and hopefully convince them to you know, take up cycling at some point in their lives is, is a big one. Um, yeah, I guess off the bike wise, those are the two things on the bike. I was, as far as on the bike goes, something I've been thinking about is how 
American stage racers are kind of in a tough situation where, you know, sports people uh, are generally considered to be entertainers and, you know, the whole crit series that are happening are talking about it being entertainment, but because we don't have any sort of live coverage of our races, it's like the only ones we're really entertaining ourselves. So we try and combat that, you know, just with like our photographers and posting photos on, on Instagram afterwards. But yeah, I mean, I think there is genuinely a lot of entertainment to be had there within the stage racing that, you know, when you, if you go on the GCN app at any given week, you see that there's like three different stage races that they're going to be live streaming. So we just sort of like need that initial buy-in for someone being willing to stream our races. And then I think we will like find the audience for it. Yeah, I was going to say, I want to kind of tap into that, actually, because a lot of people have said, you know, like, all right, so Project Echelon is clearly committed to stage racing. Are you going to just go and base yourself in Europe? And my answer is absolutely not. No, I'm committed to growing North American racing. I believe that there is a place for stage racing in North America. I believe that there's a place for criterion racing. Um in, in North America. And I want to be a part of, of both of those. What I, what I, what my vision is, is, um, to go and, and compete against the best of the best in Europe to get that coverage on GCN, um, and get the cycling fan that watches the Tour de France and maybe the Giro and maybe Perry Roubaix or whatever, to get a glimpse of this American team racing against these names that they know and revere. And then to be like, holy crap, like they're going to be in Fayetteville. Like I'm coming. I'm going to go. I, I know that guy. Like that's Matt Zimmer. He won a KOM jersey at Challenge Mallorca. I watched that race. And I want to bring that excitement uh, and that prestige back to the United States. So for Project Echelon, like, and, you know, Human Powered Health has made the decision to basically 100% abandon American racing and race in Europe. And that's probably a decision that they collaboratively made with their sponsors. And if that's what's best for the longevity of that team, then great. But I don't think that that's what's best for growing the sport here. Um, and certainly as a veteran nonprofit, um, you know, we need to be stateside. Uh, so we're going to, we're going to play both, both sides of the card. And um, I'm hoping that we're successfully doing that now, but continue to build on that going forward. Why is it so hard? for you to get coverage from the media, the American-based cycling media of your team's successes. I'm copied on the press releases that you send out. I'm copied on press releases from a lot of other teams that send out press releases because of, you know, by virtue of their successes, I see them. But when I see the turnaround from press release to published article by the cycling news is the velo news is the cycling tips any of it the percentage ratio between what goes out from a team to what gets published is incredibly low when it comes down to u.s racing why is that the case why do you struggle so hard in just getting the basic message out that we are good at bike racing here are numerous examples of it i'm gonna take one step back and give you a for instance and then come back to the question we recently got invited to maryland cycling classic right arguably the biggest one day race in north america i think there's seven world tour teams um coming five 
continental teams and then uh, or pro continental teams and then some continental teams um our team being one of them and uh we got announced at the same time as trek jayco lula and one other world tour team and during that press release they actually asked us to be the feature for it um i did an interview with the race promoter um and their media director uh provided a number of quotes all of them were removed from the press release by Cycling News and Bella News. Um, we, weren't, we weren't mentioned in it. None of those quotes were included. If you go and look at the actual press release on the Maryland Cycling Classic website, first of all, it was published very different. And for whatever reason, I feel like it's kind of the, the Omerta type thing where people are afraid to admit that like we've got fucking talented athletes here, like good bike racers that can challenge on a global scale. And like, they just, they want it to be this romantic European thing. Like we don't want the Cowboys from, from the U S coming over and messing with what we've got. And so it's just easier to not cover it than to talk about like the excitement and the energy and the prolific winners that we have here stateside. But guys like Nielsen being successful there, guys like Quinn, um, you know, first person to wear an, uh, an, a U.S. national championship jersey in 22 years at the Tour de France. Tyler Farrar was the last person to do that, right? Like that's that's going to start changing that, right? Because people will look at Quinn and then they'll go and see Tyler Williams and Tyler Stites on the podium with them at national championships and see other world tour riders like Brandon McNulty, not there. Okay, like you can't deny that we have talent. You have to start covering this. Like there is an amazing scene here and it will lead to future success. Tyler Stites is probably one of the best bike racers in the United States. He is probably one of the best bike racers in the world. He just happens to race on a UCI continental team in the United States. And because of that, I wonder if that's the only reason why he has not been picked up by a world tour team. I mean, no disrespect to Project Echelon or the work that you guys have been doing, but Tyler is at that level. He is at that world tour level. He has proven it by two podiums at nationals. Do you think that part of the reason why he doesn't get the looks that he should be getting from, you know, Israeli Startup Nation or Astana or Trek Lidl is because he's not getting the same level of publicity that an equivalent level rider racing in England or in France or in Spain would be getting? Yeah, it's um, it's right place, right time. It, I mean, that's as much as we want to say that your spot on a roster is um, about performance. It's, it's equally about who you know, who you talk to, and when you talk to them. Um, I was reading uh, an article about a, I forget which team it was, but he's starting his first tour um, this year. And he was talking about his journey to, to getting there. And, um, you know, four years ago was working at a bike shop, Team director called um, the owner saying, hey, you've got a guy in your club. We were interested in talking to him. And the team owner said, like, hey, he's talking to a, a couple other teams, but this guy that you don't know about, you should be talking to him. And it was the right place, right time. Guy answered the phone, made an introduction, and um, he, ended, he ended up finding himself on a world tour team a year later. Now, because You're right, because we don't have that coverage and because we don't have that direct access 
finish the race, go and talk to that team director um, or that team director seeing you in the breakaway and coming and finding you at the team bus later. It, it, it creates another barrier. Um, I think that with social media and you know just open lines of communication that we have today that we didn't have even a decade ago, I think that is changing, but it requires athletes to be their own best advocate, to be, um, to be agents for themselves. If, if that's not a skill set you have, because not everybody is um, flamboyant and loud and, you know, look at me kind of person, um, I think there's a lot of athletes that maybe get overlooked because of it. See, Alan, this is why you need that TikTok account. You need to be out there eight seconds, eight, eight, two minutes at a time. I mean, look at Maggie Cole's Lister and the work that she does with her social media when they started the Girodonna and there was that hellish or hellacious rain and hail. She did a, a reel on Instagram that was her singing along to uh, like something about fish under the sea. Under the sea, it was from uh, Little Mermaid. She did a whole thing about that. And I have it in my mind. And now I know that I associate that with Maggie Cole's Lister. And you know, like, when are you gonna get your own TikTok account and start doing videos from Redlands and Gila. I mean, doing a great video from that first day of Redlands where you made the break, that's solid gold. Yeah, true. Uh, gotta gotta ha- have someone that's able to get that like footage and, and photos for you first is the big issue. Uh, hard to do it when you're in the race. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I think just to, to go back to us kind of getting the cold shoulder by the cycling media it's it's kind of tough to swallow because that also sort of gives all of these races credibility um you know when they are doing like 100 word write-ups about the stage was this long this person won in this amount of time this was second and third it doesn't exactly paint a very good picture of the race that we're doing but I mean, we have photographers or photographers at all of these races. So if someone like the Escape Collective, who is definitely going to have a big like Euro audience looking at the articles that they're posting, can do like a genuine write up on, you know, the four days of Joe Martin and include like these great pictures that we're getting from Snowy Mountain and, you know, everybody else that's there. I think that would like catch the eye of a lot of people in Europe and also just like give our UCI races more credibility uh, and really just like show how difficult they are and how like genuinely good of races they are. I've done some chats. I've had conversations with like the TBC folks, Tucson Bicycle Classic, Tour of Newport News, you know, along with the folks who are running the multi-day criterium series. Cause I don't think we need to overlook the fact that there are criterium series, so like Gateway or Toad or Intelligentsia, that have embedded with them, you know, this stage race-esque omnium that goes throughout the course of the week that oftentimes gets completely overlooked. I mean, how many of us know who won Toad for the men or the women? How many of us know who, you know, who was the individual winner of any particular stage of Valley of the Sun versus whether or not this person won the overall. It's kind of weird what we decide to fixate and focus on. But I do know that, you know, from conversations with various promoters of these events, that they always want 
more when it comes down to collaboration and work with the media, which is why this year was the first time that I included with our results posts, not just first, second, and third, but also who was the overall GC leader at that point in time. I can't believe that I failed to do that in the past. That's that's a huge miss on my part. So from now on, you're going to see a yellow circle for whoever is in the yellow jersey, even if it's not a yellow jersey for that particular event, because I just think that's the most ubiquitous. Eric, take us home. Last words on this topic here. What do you want to see for the remainder of 2023 or, you know, with 2024, with cycling media coverage of these stage races? You're talking to somebody who intends on covering these races. What do you want to see from Alan, from myself, from Celine, from all of us? Yeah, I, I think at the end of the day, it's... Um... And to, to recognize that the, these wins are as credible, as prolific, as exciting, as important as any single day criterion win that we that we have. Um, to truly dig into and understand and appreciate um, kind of the unique drama, the the storylines that stage racing creates. Um, like if we can tell and capture those stories, there's no way you can deny how exciting it is, right? Like, man, I sit down with my 88 year old grandma and watch the tour and start to explain like, Hey, this is why Jonas Vingegaard shook his head and chose not to pull around Pogachar yesterday. And she like walks in, right? Like she just started watching this thing 20 minutes ago with me. And now she's like, Oh, I understand these guys are actually doing battle and it's a 21 day battle and every move you make matters. Like when we can start to explain that and, and build an excitement around those storylines. Um, I think that's when we're going to have success and, um, it's going to take continued, continued efforts like this from teams, from media, uh, from race promoters. And then I think the other pieces, um, and I know there's a lot of guys and girls in the Peloton that want more stage racing. Um, they just don't come out and say it like they just, they're just happy to race. And unfortunately, like that's the state we were in for a slump, you know, for a number of years. And so if it was a 60 minute race or 70 minute race or two hour race or a stage race, they didn't care. They're racing. They're happy. Like there's a lot of people that are craving stage racing and they're not talking about it. Uh, they're not demanding it. And so I, I want to hear those voices. Right? You know, um, Justin Williams has done an amazing job of promoting and, and lifting up what he believes to be the most exciting form of racing and good on him. He's worked his ass off to do it. And stage racing in large part has, has been lifted up because of his work, right? If, if we want to have more stage races come back, riders need to pursue it with that level of passion ambition and energy as well i i think it i think we're we're on the upward trajectory i'm i'm seeing it i'm hearing it um the level up at those races the number of teams the sizes of those fields is um, getting to a point where like you can't deny it anymore uh, and we just we just have to stay on the gas well thank you so much eric alan as always thank you guys for talking to us about this super important topic 
Thank you. It's always a pleasure, Rob. Yeah, absolutely. Long live state races. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the show. We are a proud part of the Wide Angle Podium Network of Shows. Today's episode was written, produced, and edited by me, Rob Kelly. Special thanks goes out to Eric Hill and Alan Schroeder for joining and helping us figure all this good stuff out. We will be back in two weeks' time with the full cast, Celine, Alan, and I, to find out what's happened lately and just to catch up on all the bike racing action here in the United States over the last couple of months. So join us here again next time for more stories from our Criterium Nation.